Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm joined today by Dr. Ashish Jha, White House COVID-19 Response Coordinator. Welcome, Ashish, and thanks for making time. This has been perhaps the busiest year of your life, a busiest week of your life. Well, it's both, right, Steve? It's been both the busiest a year, but this week has been uh, extraordinarily so because we obviously ended the public health emergency and, and there's just a lot of, of work that goes into doing that. So it was it was a busy week, but we're at the tail end of it and I'm getting a chance to spend some time talking to you and I'm delighted to do that. Thank you. So let's start with this week and the end of the public health emergency yesterday. The more I read about this, the more gargantuan and multidimensional this entire thing looks to me. This, in effect, is the unwinding of a $4.6 trillion enterprise begun at the advent of that emergency three years ago. Many have pointed out that this transformed our government temporarily into a de facto social democracy. We didn't really quite understand that, I don't think. But now we're in the unwinding, and, and there are many streams of unwinding at different paces, different timelines. We're not exactly returning to the status quo ante by any means, but nor are we continuing with this enterprise as, as it has been. Naturally, this is confusing. It's difficult for citizens to get their minds around such a complicated, multidimensional phenomenon. We've never lived through such a thing. Perhaps as we got to the end of World War II, something like this was experienced. So I'm now going to test your, your vast communication skills and ask you, how do you succinctly explain to Americans what's happening in this unwinding? Yeah. So three years ago, when the pandemic began, um, we saw the entire U.S. government, the federal government, uh, shift and shape and course and get focused on fighting the pandemic. That, of course, meant some things directly in healthcare, but it also had these broad implications for, as you suggest, social welfare and, and all sorts of other policies. And the process we have been involved in in the last six months, this unwinding, is really is trying to accomplish a couple of things. One, get us out of the emergency posture, because you can't stay in emergency posture forever. You just can't. And we can talk more about why you can't. But the second is to be thoughtful about the transition of all those other social policies that we've enacted, health policies we've enacted, to try to think about which ones do we want to keep. And obviously, that's a decision anytime there's funding involved where Congress has a very large role to play. And so, for instance, one of the places people talk a lot about is the Medicaid redeterminations. And it is true that millions of Americans will lose access to health insurance. 
my view on this, you know, and the administration's view on this, you know, which is we think everybody should have health insurance in America. You know, and unfortunately, like this is a decision Congress made as, as part of the omnibus bill. They actually they actually split it off from the ending of the public health emergency. And they said, you know, whenever the PHE ends, doesn't matter. We're going to do this uh, unwinding of the Medicaid provisions. Again, so I probably have not done this succinctly. The goal here is get out of the emergency phase, keep the protections and keep the policies that you found to be really useful. Obviously, when significant sums of money are involved, even not so significant, um, really doing that with Congress and Congress has shaped that as well. So do you believe that we're in, in several important respects emerging from this period stronger than we were before? I mean, a lot of the critique is that we're in a period of rapid regression and we're not really taking full account of what the protections are that we will still require, but that we're being a bit rash in the unwinding. The counter argument is to say, uh, yeah, we had to get out of an emergency mode. Yes, we have strong and divided views within Congress and we have to take those into account. So these are a series of compromise measures. But are we emerging stronger in some important respects? I think we are undoubtedly emerging stronger in many ways. So let's talk about those and then we can talk about challenges we still face. I think uh, we are emerging better prepared for both future surges of COVID and future pandemics. Do I think we are where we need to be? No, I'd like us, I'd like a lot more, but we are clearly in better shape today than we were three and a half years ago. Look, we have way better surveillance systems now than we did. We have a national wastewater surveillance system we did not have. We have a stockpile that is now much better repleted. Um, we had a pretty empty stockpile three and a half years ago when this pandemic began. We've got stockpiles of vaccines and tests and treatments and PPE um, that are just leaves the country much better prepared. There's also other things that I think we have, like, for instance, the telehealth flexibilities. Flexibility is a bit of a funny term, but, you know, we learned how to start using telehealth much more effectively during the pandemic. And that stays. That does not go away as a public health emergency. Is. So there are real things that are better now than they were three and a half years ago. You know, look, I loved the fact, loved the fact that we had the lowest numbers of uninsured Americans over the last two years. Because to go into a pandemic and to live through a pandemic being uninsured uh, is just that much worse. And, you know, the unwinding of the Medicaid program, I told you, is like a place where we're going to see some people lose health insurance. We're doing everything we can to try to make sure that as many of those people who are eligible get it. Obviously, I think states should expand Medicaid that have not. That would make a big difference. We're trying to do everything to get people enrolled into Obamacare plans and other types of plans. But that is a loss. Like we are worse off because there are going to be more uninsured Americans. So I think there are some clear things that were in much better shape, but some things were landing in a place I wish we were not. So in terms of the change of consciousness, I mean, when we talk about emerging stronger, we have institutional capacities that persevere, that, that carry into the future. Uh, we have new vulnerabilities with the 15 million or so who are off of Medicaid. There are a couple of states that have moved to provide Medicaid coverage as a result of the pandemic. Some are that are considering this, but there have been some shifts, it seems to me, of consciousness among political leaders of all stripes, 
if you were to do a survey of governors, for instance, um, in red, purple, blue states around the change of their thinking, I think you'd get a pretty interesting and very consistent kind of picture. Those changes in thinking are not going away. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed in terms of just the basic understanding and comprehension of these threats and the sense of ownership and responsibility that's emerged among those in elected leadership, particularly those which are so heavily operational, mayors and governors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is really an interesting strength out of this last three years that I think, well, and there's some, some challenges there too. I mean, let's start with the challenges first. Obviously, what you, one of the things you've seen is huge turnover in the public health leadership of the United States. You know, majority of state health officers have left. A large proportion of county health officers have, have changed over. Part of it is just brutal to keep going day in, day out. These are incredibly hard jobs under normal circumstances, almost unbearably so during a pandemic, and it's been very hard to sustain. And then a lot of these state health officers have also suffered a lot of abuse and attacks, which obviously has made that much, much harder. And that loss is real, and I think there's a lot of work being done right now to make sure that, that the institutional memory that comes from that leadership isn't lost. But it gets to your other point, which is cities and states have been on the front lines here. I mean, we forget that public health is local in the United States. People often sort of think about we need a national, and again, national CDC, very, very important. You know, you and others have written about and talked about uh, how to strengthen CDC. Um, But at the end of the day, public health is local. I actually think there's a lot of upsides to public health being local. And public health agencies have like learned a ton about how to get people, vac- adults vaccinated. That's something that they just generally hadn't done before. They've learned a ton about how do you set up test and treat programs in communities because that turns out to be a really effective way of preventing serious illness. They have built new relationships with healthcare systems in a way that they hadn't before. I've heard from both public health people and health system leaders about how they have been spending more time talking to each other in the last three years than they had in their entire lives before that. Those are benefits that I think in the long run will pay dividends. And those things have happened in red states and blue states because it has necessitated that that happen. So I, I think there's a lot of like learning here and we've got to just make sure we sustain it as we see transitions in leadership. Now, just to bring the conversation back to Washington a bit, you know, Here, it seems to me, we have a much more polarized and hot debate going on, particularly within Congress or between Republicans in Congress and the administration. Some of this is maybe a a phase. In other words, we're seeing a lot of anger and a lot of frustration, a lot of skepticism and distrust being voiced in this period. Some of it is amped by, amplified by the electoral cycle that's, uh, that's beginning to unfold. But some of it also may be transitory. And what I mean by that is, is you think about where we are in this transition as we get out of this emergency. Do you see this kind of polarization and anger and rage, bordering on rage, really, and the ferocity of attack against science, public health authorities and others? Do you see that as something that, as it is expressed, will eventually give give way to a, a calmer and more studied to the set of deliberations? So I do, and I, <laughs> I just need to check myself that this is not just wishful thinking, 
uh, because I obviously very much hope that that is what it is. Look, I see the reactions that are happening right now very much as a trauma reaction. We just went through this collective trauma. Post-trauma, there is anger. There's also often a desire to forget and not talk and suppression. And, and we're seeing that kind of collective amnesia as well. But over time, I think most sensible people will realize, and I think they realize now, that we have been through an extraordinarily difficult three years. You know, more than a million Americans have died. Um, it has been devastating in all these other ways. No, we didn't get all the policy responses right. And yes, there were um, problems along the way and, and how we responded as a country. But that we have to continue to both learn lessons from it and continue to get better at this. Because I think most serious people realize that we're entering a new era where we're going to see more outbreaks, more global outbreaks, and we have to continue to be prepared for those things. You know, I was reading the week before last, Dr. Fauci, Tony Fauci gave an, a long interview with David Wallace Wells in the New York Times, which to me signaled some kind of shift underway. And what I mean by that is he said, look, we've all made big mistakes. And this is a moment in which we need to be engaged in a bit more introspection and humility and self-criticism. We being those who are public health and scientific leaders, we too made mistakes and need to be introspective and self-critical and humble. But he also said, you know, those that are most angry and suspicious and critical of our work, they have some valid points and we need to figure out how to listen to them. And he drew a comparison to the earlier period, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when the HIV AIDS community and the before antiretrovirals had come into play in the late 90s and become widely accessible, was fiercely angry at the way clinical trials were being conducted and the access issues, vilifying him and others. And there was a pivot in his in thinking and engagement that proved to be very foundational to his own outlook on the world, what he seemed to be suggesting was we're at a moment similar to that. Uh, I wanted you to just comment on that. Yeah. I read that article, obviously. I thought Tony was, I mean, Tony obviously has had this extraordinary career where he has been able to recognize those moments and pivot in a way that I think has been very helpful. But, I, you know, when I think about the community of activists who were angry about the way the clinical trials were being done, the way drug development was happening. They had done their homework. They had shown up. They were angry because people were dying. And they had ideas for how to make things better that were concrete and real. And that allows for a pivot. And right now, you have some of that. And a lot of just kind of general anger that has also morphed into, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment and has turned into a whole lot of other things that are not so productive. And it's not really clear how you pivot to that. So I think my hope is that in the weeks and months to come, as some of the anger sort of cools a bit, we absolutely look at the mistakes that were made by pretty much everybody. Because, And it's interesting to think about them as mistakes because, of course, people were doing the best they could. Some of it was mistakes and others it just turned out later that the evidence changed, the science, the data changed. And when that happens, uh, you have to pivot as well. So there is no question, Steve, that this pandemic will change public health 
in very substantial ways in the years to come, much like the way the HIV outbreak did. And probably this one much more so because it affected all of society and, and in a very, very profound way. Not to diminish the incredibly important role that HIV, uh, the impact it had. The question for all of us is how is it going to transform and how do we make sure that we learn the lessons in a way that makes public health more responsive, more understanding of a lot of the costs that occurred because of what, what happened in the response. The costs and also the sort of the need for a broader societal view of how these decisions impact, but also a better political acumen, it seems to me, around we in the midst of a deeply divided. I mean, the public health community enjoyed a standing for a long time that maybe they weren't supported with adequate budgets, but at least they were not seen as the enemy and they weren't seen as, as tone deaf to many of the other considerations that were there. And I think part of what Tony Vivacci was saying was not listen to people who have pernicious agendas, but listen to people who suffered in the dislocations and felt like their suffering was not adequately taken into account. And they're looking for someone to recognize that. And Tony is absolutely right. I think having more views uh, into public health, having a better understanding of the breadth of our society and recognizing the, the, a lot of the suffering that went on, all of that is going to be a very important part of rebuilding trust in public health. I, I think the, the loss of trust in public health is, is substantial, it's profound, and it is incumbent on all of us who work in public health to re-earn that trust. Yes, thank you. Let's turn to two things that are on your plate at the moment, one of which is the creation of a new White House Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. This is, has its roots in the PREVENT Act that Senators Burr and Murray put together, incorporated into the omnibus bill. And it's something that merges the two offices within the White House that covered different, the, the COVID office, but the, also the office that covered the broader spectrum of threats. And in that way, it's, it's something that is consistent with the broader vision around how, within the White House itself, on how it wanted to move forward. My question there is, what can we expect to see? In that, there's been a lot of commentary around, okay, is this, as we're unwinding, we're stepping up a new entity. That's difficult, inherently difficult to do, right? You're going in two directions that it makes sense, but it's difficult. The second issue is the deflation of leadership capacity, the perception that with the departure of Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, your imminent departure, Dr. Pajabi's departure later, Dr. Walensky leaving uh, end of June, that we're going to be operating without a very strong public health leadership capacity in this next phase. And there the question, I guess, is will that soon be restored? Will that very important capacity be, be restored? And what's the strategy? So it's part of it is this office. How will this office unfold? And part of it is the human element of senior leadership. Yeah. So let's let's take those separately. So we're very much in the process of setting up this new office. You know, new offices, obviously, inside the White House raise all sorts of important issues you have to sort out. How does it interact with existing offices? How do you set it up and design it to be kind of optimally effective? So a lot of that work is happening. And then the other part I would say, you know, on this is that 
making sure we have very strong leadership inside that office is also critical. And, and we just, we're just working our way through that. And we've been doing it while we've been working on the unwinding of the PHE. And, uh, and, and as I have said publicly before, you know, um, at some point, the COVID response team will cease to exist and we will have an office of pandemic preparedness and response. And it will, um, you know, it'll play a pretty critical role in this broad set of issues, uh, much in the way that, that Congress had, had intended, certainly as Senators Burr and, and Murray articulated. In terms of that kind of broader uh, public health leadership, here's what I would say, Steve. I mean, first of all, some of this transition is both very normal and completely predictable, right? In the third year of a lot of presidencies, you yeah. see people saying, I've been going, you know, 100 miles per hour for a while and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down and take a break or, or, or do something else. That's pretty normal. So I think, and, and of course, uh, I came in later. I didn't come in in the beginning of the administration, but everybody who's at all related to public health inside this administration, not just working under normally difficult circumstances, but they've been working on a global pandemic for, for two and a half years. So the un, kind of the unwinding of the PHE is also a natural moment. So people kind of look at this and say, is this unusual? I'm like, no, you, this is sort of predictable that you would see something like this. And in each of these, I, I always remind people, senior leadership is very important, but a ton of the expertise is in the agencies, in among the scientists. You know, I've spent a bunch of time in the last, I, I've talked to you about this at other moments, about, I've been spending a lot of time at NIAID thinking about some of the scientific work happening there on next generation of vaccines and treatments. Extraordinary work. Yes, we don't have an NIAID leader right now. We will. But the work continues. Obviously, the, the critical agency inside HHS is ASPR. Um, Don has provided, Don O'Connell has provided terrific leadership, and that continues. And I think you're going to see in the upcoming weeks more leadership announcements. Uh, th these are not issues that are going to fall off anybody's radar. Uh, this remains a central set of issues, COVID specifically, the broader pandemic preparedness. And so under a normal sort of, in my mind, kind of pretty typical, predictable uh, transition period, you're going to see new people coming in and, um, and really strong leadership. Some of the concern is fed from the awareness that we're in an exceptionally uh, divided political situation at this moment of the unwinding and the question of what next and what needs to be preserved and sustained. We've seen the departure of figures who've been around for a long time who have been hugely impactful and iconic, Francis Collins, Tony Fauci. So there's a kind of generational change going on, not just a two years into it and two and a half years into administration. So there's this question of generational replenishment that's very much on the table, like who are going to lead these who are going to be there and have that? And maybe we're unrealistic at thinking that that people of that stature and gravitas, you can't plan them for those. They happen. And then, of course, the other consideration is that so many of our key institutions are visibly, overtly frayed and vulnerable, CDC being one that you've mentioned, one that we focused on. So I do think it's people are going to be watching carefully in hope in hope that we see some very strong people. Um, Monica Bertignoli, who's, we're told, will be nominated to succeed Francis Collins, is an exceptional person, uh, very charismatic, great scientist, great communicator, very pragmatic, 
um, I think people will be very hopeful about that. That'll help turn the conversation a bit. And I will say, by the way, it is hard to predict when you're going to get another Tony Fauci. I mean, Tony is such a singular figure in American public health history, arguably in just kind of in our country. So the the strategy is you pick the best people. Thankfully, we have uh, a lot of very talented, capable uh, scientific and public health leaders in our country that the administration can turn to. Who knows who will still be there 50 years later, 40 years later. Uh, that's a, that's, you only can hope we get another Tony Fauci, but I, I dare not imagine that's going to happen. So let's shift to, to your own reflections. I mean, you entered as the White House COVID coordinator, COVID response coordinator a year ago, April of 2022. So you came in really as the transition out of the acute phase was beginning, and you were already early in your tenure asked to begin to explain what were some of the transitions? What did some of the transitions mean as guidance was changing, as controls were relaxing, and you were there to kind of help translate some of this into a popular understanding of what was going on? And you brought a special pragmatism to this task and an openness to this transition and a, a style and skill in communications that was very valuable. A year later now, you may soon be departing Washington back to your home in Providence. Um, you've, you've had this searing experience. You've been thrown into the deep, and I'll mix up my metaphors here. You know, as you exit uh, and you ponder all of this, what are you going to tell your grandkids about your year abroad? So a couple of, couple of things, just actually to go back to the beginning of this question, which is, you know, when I came in, I did not know, I don't know anybody did, that we were kind of, you know, ready to end or we're beginning to end the uh, acute phase or the emergency phase. We had just had the Omicron wave. It was, and you know, and fresh on everybody's mind was the idea that you can get a virus of a variant just out of left field and that can throw every, a huge wrench. So a lot of the work over the first six, eight months of my time here was making sure that we're just super ready for to respond to that, if that happens. And then as we got through the winter, it became clear that we were at a point where not that the threat of that has gone down, but that we were at a point where ending the emergency phase made a lot of sense. And so that transition uh, took on a bigger role in the last few months. But even as I wrap up, and then I will get to your question of, of you know, learning to swim in the deep end here, as, as has been reported, you know, we've been speaking to experts, uh, real experts, about risks of future uh, Omicron-like events uncomfortably high. Um, most people who really understand this stuff think that there is a real risk of that. So one of the things that we have spent a lot of time is making sure we are ready when that happens, if that happens. Obviously, we're all going to hope it doesn't happen. But if it happens, we've got to be prepared. And it's actually part of a broader pandemic preparedness effort. That is very important. Now, what have I learned in the last year? I mean, so much, as you might imagine. Um, one of the things that I have, I think I understood vaguely, but have come to understand much more concretely, is the complexity of our country, the diversity of our country, and um, how moving policy really requires building coalitions. You know, look, you can make whatever pronouncements you want out of the White House. Actually, you can't 
you don't operate any of it. Like operationally, it's the agencies. So if you want to do something, got to bring them along. As I had said earlier, public health is fundamentally, much of it happens at the state and county level. If you really want to move action, you've got to engage and persuade and bring state and local leaders along. Uh, given that this pandemic was so consequential, uh, it turned out that lots of political leaders who never would have gotten involved in public health stuff had a lot to say. And so it's been an, this extraordinary experience of trying to think about how do you move a country in a certain set of directions? And I, again, I, you know, I would not have traded this past year for anything. Uh, it's just been incredible. Um, last point is it, it's, I mean, I've done some government service, uh, but you know this as well as anybody. Um, there is something very special about feeling like you go to work for the American people uh, in a way that I've never really felt before. And that is probably the sentiment that I walk out with in some ways. When I do leave, as we all leave these jobs, when I do, that, that feeling of serving the country, it, it just feels very, very meaningful and deep in a way that I don't think I've ever experienced before. Thank you, and thank you for your service, Ashish. Um, we're in your debt. The, the last big question is really about the strategic perspective on the next five years, let's say. And I wanted you to talk about some of the big looming issues that we've had trouble focusing on in the immediate phase to some degree. We are not engaging China in a senior level fashion around preparing for the next pandemic. Our, our relationships in a unprecedented stressed position and there's still hope that we can engage and profitably in health security and reach some common understandings and avoid mistakes that we've seen this period. But right now, that doesn't that dialogue doesn't exist. And so we're thinking about how to get that going. We also have discovered that the pervasive phenomenon of disinformation and misinformation and the ferocity of it and the way in which that can dwarf our communications capacities. And what are we going to do about that? And I don't know that we have great answers on that. And of course, the climate impacts on health, we see more overtly, there's been a consciousness shift to recognizing that mortality is increasing, that displacement, that all sorts of regressive regression in health, in health gains is accumulating with force and, and accelerated force. Say a bit about some of those big ticket issues as you're thinking about the future and the way in which if you are, find yourself again in government or back training the next generation of students of public health or wherever you land, how, what's your thinking around those big ticket items yeah. as strategic dimensions of the next five years? Yeah, I, I start off by a point that I think is really important that you essentially made, which is we've had this mental model of gains in health, gains in life expectancy have just been going in one direction. And that somehow that was sort of almost baked in, that scientific advancement, et cetera, would just mean that we keep living longer, healthier, better lives. And I think there is right now in front of us a real threat to that model. And not just in the, what we saw in the pandemic, but you have seen in other countries a beginning of a recovery that we really have not witnessed here in the United States. 
And it reminds you that pandemics have very large direct effects, but they also have large indirect effects on health in ways that can be quite consequential. And so we have to understand and see these things in that broader context. You know, I will say that like my view on China has been, has been for a long time, continues to be, uh, that the world is much better off when the U.S. and, and China engage on these kinds of issues. I think kind of more broadly on, on health security, pandemic preparedness, um, but kind of more broader uh, health issues in general. Uh, obviously, it's a complicated relationship, not one that I particularly uh, profess any expertise in understanding, uh, but I have felt for years that that, but that constructive engagement on these issues leaves America better off, leaves the world better off. And I think we've got to get, get to that. Um, let me just finish off a little bit about kind of information. You know, I think a lot about the fact that you and I were involved in, you know, we did that Ebola report together. Um, you and I and many others uh, were involved in thinking about pandemic preparedness work uh, before COVID. And one of the things I've come to realize is all of those plans, including ones that I worked on, um, assumed a very different information architecture and a very different information ecosystem than the one we found ourselves in. And so every single plan, every single effort on thinking about these things for the future absolutely has to recognize that we live in a very different information ecosystem and we have got to build the communication tools that are responsive to that. I think we can't give up the fight against bad information. And yet, in some ways, I feel like our old tools are not working. We just have to develop better ones, newer ones. And, uh, and that has to happen within government. And I think that is beginning to happen within government. It also obviously really needs to happen uh, outside of government uh, in kind of, you know, in our civil society organizations, universities, think tanks, et cetera. These are all sort of the big issues of our time. And what I worry about is if we think about pandemic preparedness too narrowly, like, are we going to have the vaccine platforms? Are we going to have the medical? Like, those are really important. We got to do those. But if we don't see these broader contextual issues that you're suggesting that we do, climate, of course, being a major threat multiplier, as, as people often describe it, then we will not get to the level of preparation that we need. And we will not be more effective uh, in the next pandemic if we don't work on these other issues. So I, I certainly think that that broader perspective is absolutely essential here uh, if we're going to develop any more preparedness plans. And one last thing I will say is inside the White House, the urgency and the importance of these issues, um, it's not just I who feel it. In the conversations we have um, with the rest of the senior leadership, a very clear recognition that we have got to continue pressing forward on getting the country better prepared for uh, these kinds of health challenges. Thank you, Ashish. Um, we close all of these conversations asking uh, our guests to tell us you know, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking forward. There is a lot of things that have given me a lot of hope over the last three years. And two things kind of come to mind off the top of my head. So I was at a graduation ceremony yesterday for my Mount Sinai School of Medicine. It's really interesting. It was the last class graduating that came in before the pandemic. They were all first-year students when the pandemic hit, of course, in New York City. And the dean who was, you know, leading the ceremony talked about all the things the students did because, of course, they couldn't take care of people. 
They were first-year medical students. So they did this extraordinary amount of work to support clinicians, to take care of patients, like to help take care of patients, to do all the things. And it just struck me that we continue to have, with each new generation, people who are deeply committed to doing good. And we have got to um, use moments like this uh, to keep them inspired, keep them hopeful. Um, I just, it was so fun to be like at a graduation and see these young people and realize like they have 30, 50 years of careers ahead of them. And they have, again, I can't speak for everyone, but they are there for the right reasons. And their actions show that. And that gives me a tremendous amount of hope. The other thing I will say, just because it's been so extraordinary, the scientific response in this pandemic, the way science came together. I mean, everybody talks about the vaccines and of course they were extraordinary, but just the level of scientific collaboration that happened in, I just have never seen anything like that in my life. And it's also a reminder that when we have a common enemy, um, we have a lot of capability of coming together to solve problems. And that should be a model we don't lose when the pandemic ends. Thank you so much for taking all this time, Ashish, and thank you for your service to the country. This has been a terrifically rich and very timely conversation, so thank you. Well, I enjoyed it, so I appreciate you reaching out, and thanks again. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.